Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In season three, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest on resilience is actor, producer, and director Dar Dixon. As Dar states, so when we're in pain, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves more than it's helpful or healthy. When you have something bigger than yourself, like I found myself having, it lifted me up out of my own backside, so to speak, and be able to have a higher perspective on what was actually going on. I'm Dar Dixon. I am an actor and producer, director, and writer. You kind of have to be all those things in Hollywood. I've been doing it for about coming up on 30 years now. And uh, this has been so, you know, I didn't get into this business until I was probably like 28 years old uh, because I was afraid. Um, and uh, that's just full disclosure. But I'm doing it. I love it. Uh, I'm the oldest of four boys. Uh, married a beautiful woman who grew up in the seat of the civil rights movement. Um, her father and Martin Luther King Jr. were best friends. My father-in-law's name was Ralph David Abernathy, and together he and Uncle Martin founded the civil rights movement. So um, it's been quite a trip so far. And then somewhere in between getting into that and, and becoming getting into acting and becoming married, I, I zigged when I should have zagged and I got caught up in a cult. And uh, I don't wish that upon anybody, but I, I am really actually grateful for it because it helped make me and shape me into who I am today and um, helped me to develop resilience, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Well, I'm so curious by that. So we will dig into it a little deeper, but I loved when you started. So first of all, thank you for contributing to my interview series, uh, Rising Through Resilience, How to Be Resilient During Turbulent Times. And we are living, unfortunately, in extremely turbulent times. Um, one of the things I found most profound in that piece with Authority Magazine and, and Thrive Global is this mm -hmm. idea of developing a sense of humor. I just loved mm -hmm. how you started off because most people think a sense of humor is something that's sort of to the side or something that's extra. But I love the fact that you began that with sort of this feeling of looking outside of yourself and seeing kind of something that's that's more amusing. So if you could expand yeah. that. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for noticing that. Um, I think 
I, I, I was lucky. My, I was talking with a friend of mine a few hours ago, and we've known each other since uh, high school. And um, best friend in the world. And I said, you know, when I was talking, I lost my aunt, uh, my father's only sister, uh, two weeks ago to COVID. And uh, I was just reminiscing about her and her incredible sense of humor. And I was telling my friend, I said, she's just got this outrageous sense of humor. Um, she doesn't take herself seriously, but she takes life very seriously. Um, and yet she doesn't because she has this incredible sense of humor. I think even more than my dad and my uncle. And he goes, I don't know, man. They're pretty outrageous and funny, too. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, he's right. You know, it's kind of a, a genetic thing. And it's helped me through my trials. Like you had cancer. I had a cult. Um, I guess everything starts with the C word that's bad, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, there, humor. If you can find the humor in any given situation, especially a bad situation, what I've noticed is that you necessarily free yourself and you liberate yourself from those emotional and psychological chains that kind of try to trap you in, in your mind and in your heart from, from having a better perspective on things. And if you have an ability to see the humor in something horrible, like in cancer, I'm sure there was something that was funny. I mean, maybe while you're getting chemo, you're like, really, this is what my life has come to. And you can probably make two or three jokes, right? Hundred percent, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I it, actually, I have to say, uh, in my first chemo appointment, they had this uh, drug called vincristine. It was like this red, globbly, like I'm like jello looking. And I'm like, jello is that really gonna go in me? And she's like, it's gonna go in you really fast. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think so. Um, but five hours later, it did go in me. So let's put it that way. Yeah. And that's the roughest one too, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it was yeah. pretty bad. Yeah, even though it looks like red jello, it ain't fun. No. So, but if you can find that moment, just like just now, he's talking about, that's very painful treatment that he just laughingly described, but you'll notice he's lifted out of that emotional jail that can happen all too easily. And so, uh, you know, being brainwashed, uh, losing 20 years of my life to this cult, um, not a lot of fun. Uh, and so, you know, as the British say, I had to take the piss out of it. And so I started making fun of the situation and then making fun of myself for getting in that situation. Mm. Um, and, and it just kind of gave me a whole new perspective and perspective's everything. And I, I, I equate it to uh, when you're able to laugh at something and you get a better perspective. It's like if you're up in a plane up at like 25,000 feet and you look down, you can see the train really clearly. Whereas if you're on the ground, you know, you can't see things as well. And so that's why I think it's so critical to be able to laugh at the situation and laugh at yourself. Yeah. You know, Dar, also what struck me in the article was your basically support and your um, engagement when it comes to social justice and race and diversity and inclusion. Has that always been something that's been extremely prevalent in your life? Or did you learn that through, you know, the rough times? I wish I could say that it's, all, well, you know, maybe it has always been there, to be honest with you. I'm the oldest of four boys. All three of my brothers are gay men. Uh, we never talked about it growing up. It was like the pink elephant in the room. And uh, I always jokingly say that I've been down for the cause, LGBTQ plus cause, 
forever. And um, because I would always have to defend my brothers, they would get picked on and it would never be one-on-one. It would always be in a group. Bullies like to operate in groups frequently. Um, but, but more to the point now, like when, when I met my wife, I was coming out of this brainwashing in this, uh, this cult and, you know, fairly traumatic uh, situation. I want to bring the whole energy down here. But at that same time, I began to learn about the civil rights movement, which I knew nothing about, like nothing about. It's not taught in any kind of uh, functional way that's germane to the actual topic matter. And here I am listening to my wife and then my mother-in-law, who was the backbone of the movement. And it was humbling because I then I'm dealing with brainwashing in this cult and then I'm dealing with my white privilege and I'm dealing with my inherent racist ideologies. And then having to really learn and understand and being able to explain and describe what race and racism is and the effects it has, not just on black Americans, but within white communities, within Latino communities, within Middle Eastern communities, within Asian communities, on and on and on. And um, the funniest thing about that is that by, by learning about that, and this wasn't anything that was planned. You know, I just met my wife. She was a talented actress. I wanted to work with her uh, as an actor. And then uh, the rest was just like, it, it just happened and blossomed. And then I started to learn about social justice issues beyond just, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. And now I'm dealing with the black community, the history of black people in America and race, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, my father-in-law helped Cesar Chavez uh, with the uh, great boycott back in the day. And when you have something that's bigger than yourself, a cause that's bigger than yourself, it takes all that focus off of yourself. When we're in pain, when we've suffered trauma, when we're afraid, we have cancer or whatever other issue may befall you, you have a tendency, and it's just the way the brain, it's just our human brain works this way, that the, the survival mechanism is our strongest drive, and that necessarily breeds a selfishness within us. And so when we're in pain, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves more than is helpful or healthy. When you have something bigger than yourself, like I found myself having, it lifted me up out of my own backside, so to speak, and be able to have a, a higher perspective on what was actually going on. And then to be of service to someone who was in a worse situation than myself that I couldn't see because I had blinders on because, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. So um, it was beautiful and unexpected. And uh, I'm so grateful for all of it. Yeah. You know, what also struck me as well in the article is you mentioned this idea of learning to use your hands, the benefits of, of that. Can you speak, can you speak to the, to the beginning, to the you know, beginning of that process? Yeah. Well, that's, wow. That's a, man, that's great. So no one's asked me that, Savio. Um, when I got in this, what happens when you get into a cult? No one says, hey, you're a cult. Can I join? You just meet a group of people that you think are interesting. You share similarities, commonalities. You are kindred spirits. And... The next thing you know, you realize, oh, God, this is not what I thought it was. But by then, the hooks are in. And the hooks are not psychological. The hooks are emotional. But I digress. Um, one of the things they tried to do 
what they do in these situations, which a cult is really just a, a, an abusive relationship. Um, and in an abusive relationship, you get your self-esteem challenged and knocked down and belittled and berated. And so what they, what the cult leader told me, and that became my story that all the other people in the group would tell me was that, you know, I was lazy and, and, uh, oh, I forget the other thing right now. Some, some, it's like, uh, I had a heck at moon. They were big into astrology, but that doesn't really matter. And because I was lazy, I needed to go learn to work with my hands. Okay. I'm not mechanically inclined at that time. I was 22 years old. And so I went to learn how to paint. There was a guy who had a painting business who was part of this group. And um, so I did. And it was, I, I resisted the hell out of it. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be acting. I wanted to be discovering who I was and what my likes were and my dislikes. And um, the damnedest thing happened. As I began to do more and more of this work with my hands, you know, sanding walls and walking up, 20 steps of, you know, 20 flights of stairs with a, an 80 pound bucket of compound joint mixture or, or drywall or whatever it was, right. Or taking the spray machine or whatever it was, there was, there's a liberation in being able to work. And it's interesting because, um, this group used to focus like on a mishmash of all these different religions, but, uh, there's a, uh, Hinduism, there's something they call karma yoga. And karma yoga's basic tenet is that you can find union with the divine, whatever you want to call it, God, the divine, um, through work, by doing that work to the best of your ability. And I would focus on that as I was working, and it really did liberate me. And then take away all that esoteric psychological aspect of it, being able to turn a screw, handle a drill, bang a hammer, use a, a chainsaw, use use a, a table saw, uh, whatever it may be, is a really helpful thing and um, and also a viable trade that you can go out and use and make a living with, uh, or just you know help your mother hang a picture on the wall. Seems like no big deal, right? But little things like that, and so that that's. There, there's there's a big value in being able to work with your hands. I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty, even today, which flips out people when I'm on a movie set, like I was last week. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> like I started out doing this kind of stuff, kid. Don't don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, with your success on set and you know the deals and the projects, you also mentioned some of the sort of the failures you had with the hospital. Uh, can you detail a little more information about that experience? Of course. I'm glad to. Um, so wild. So there's a hospital here in South Los Angeles. The guy who was the uh, chief of staff at the time uh, is a, a general practitioner. He's my general practitioner. He grew up with my wife. They've known each other since they were like four years old in Atlanta, Georgia. And he lives out here now. We live out here now. He calls me up one night and says, hey, man, can you donate a million dollars to the hospital? And I laugh and I go, I don't know that that's going to happen right now. But what I can do is I've got this idea. And uh, a long story really short, uh, they wanted to raise money for the hospital, the foundation, you know, which is the arm, 
arm, the money raising arm of the hospital. And so we looked at the video they had, and I think the thing had last been updated in probably 1980. It was pretty bad. There was like a potted plant behind them and paneling on the wall and like an avocado green. It just, yeah, the couch behind, it was like, oh my God in heaven. And um, the guy had a Donald Trump hairstyle or some insane thing. I was like, I, we can we can help you with this. In the process of creating their new video, uh, we necessarily had to go before the board of the hospital, the administration of the hospital, and um, we had you know a full background check, and we passed with flying colors, and they gave us 24/7, 365 days a year access to film in the hospital. What? <laughs> so my mind starts racing. I'm like, this is unheard of. And these producers can't wait to make shows like Grey's Anatomy. And what was the one George Clooney was on? I forgot. It was so popular. ER. Mm, yeah. Right? We had a real hospital. This life and death, this is drama right before your eyes. So we had the idea that we would put together uh, a sizzle reel for a reality documentary style program about the hospital. And the hospital was run then by a group of nuns. I won't name the specifics, although I probably should. I'm not going to be that petty right now. And I had this little five foot tall nun in her habit, promising me and my wife that they were on board. They wanted to do this. We weren't going to exploit the hospital or the healthcare system or the nuns or the patients or anyone, because that was their biggest fear, and, and rightly so. Everybody thinks Hollywood's going to run them over like you know a freight train. And so we went out and started to shop our sizzle reel, and we got attention. We were very fortunate. We got into a bidding war, which is very rarefied there. And um, two very prominent production companies, one of them was had one, I want to say, north of 15 Emmys. And so, yeah, we were really excited to even be on their radar, let alone have them be disinterested. And so we went into the hospital with everybody to take a conference call in the conference room and the lawyers for the hospital were on the phone. And within, after the niceties of how are you, nice day, the weather, how's the traffic and water in, water out, right? They say, yeah, we're not going to do this show. What? Well, the, it, it's a very long and nefarious story, but they, they, they wanted, the nuns wanted to sell the hospital. The, I'm saying the nuns. It was a big health organization, uh, Catholic healthcare uh, organization, and they wanted to sell the hospital. And I won't get into all the details of it, but they basically left me and my wife there with egg on our face. And, you know, I don't know how much money we put in everything. Not to mention the money. Forget about the money that we'd spent. Because what was going to happen was, he's asking me for a million dollars at the beginning of this conversation, right? This show's success would necessarily eclipse that million dollars by orders of magnitude on a weekly uh, basis and a monthly basis. And this hospital is in an underserved community, one of the most gang-infested neighborhoods in South Los Angeles. And these are families that are largely black and Latino. And uh, unfortunately, they don't get served in the way they should be and could be. And this was going to be the way that we could help. 
And so when that went sideways, that was not a good day. And that it happened with the religious Catholic nuns lying every step of the way and these other administrators who had been lying to us. It was, it was, um, it was in many ways dirtier than some Hollywood deals can get. Uh, it was, it was not a good time. The good that came out of it was the hospital was able to raise more money than they ever have in their history with that. And they're still using that video we put together. Um, it's, it's pretty good. I would update it now, but I wouldn't be shy to go in and show what we've done still to this day. And, um, and so if the hospital's doing good raising money, they're able to still serve their community. And that's really the, the alpha and the omega for me and for my life. I, I remember also in that article, you mentioned the fact that that adversity or that problem, that failure was a seed to a greater truth, that it is our job to look for that. And I just, it resonates so deeply with me. How have you found that, that, that singular lesson has shaped your, you know, your life? Well, I touched upon it a little bit earlier when I mentioned that <clears throat> I'm grateful for the experience of the cult. Um, by and large, it was not good, uh, but there were really wonderful things that happened there. But um, just like you have to find a lump of coal and through the pressure of the earth and everything else and then you breaking through it you can see the diamond in there pressure brings out that diamond right a piece of sand trapped in the clams uh, uh, shell over time the irritation produces a beautiful and valuable pearl so that's where i'm coming from when i say within the seed of every problem lies an equal or greater benefit for the good right and so uh, another way of saying it is like, okay, if you're going to bitch about something or bitch about someone, great, good on you. And I, I really believe you should. Not doing it, not saying it, not expressing it, not good. That's only going to create more illness and more pain and more trauma. Better that you should verbalize it and talk about it. But if you're going to do that, then you also got to talk about the good that came out of it or the good that came from your interaction with that person and in doing so now you have owned the whole aspect of it and it matures and seasons and it gives you wisdom it gives you grace and it gives you a humility and a patience that i've not been able to find personally myself any other way so uh that's the answer yeah you, you know you beautifully also explore a mother's love, which which really resonated with me. How has a mother's love been able to keep you uplifted and keep you going every day? You know, it's so interesting. Um, my mother and I, from the time I was about 12 on, we didn't have the best relationship. And if I'm going to be honest, it was pretty bad. Uh, I don't think we could be in the same room for longer than five minutes before we'd start a fight. And uh, fighting with each other. And, you know, I was probably the butthead more often than not, although she did her share of being the butthead. It's two-way street. But uh, I started to think about what I just said. I was thinking about this in, in terms of my mother. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to beat her up for this, which I had been, 
if I'm going to beat my father, if this is what we're talking about my mother right now, then I got to find the good in what she did. And there's so much good that, that she gave me and so much good. Now, did it come the way I wanted it to? Not, not all the time. No, <laughs> it just didn't. Did it come at the, at the, at the way I needed it to have or at the, at the precise moment? Not all the time, but that's life, right? And, uh, you know, a mother's love is, is, I don't even know how to, I don't even, I don't know what to say about that. It's, uh, it's taken me a long time to get to this point because in the past I was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I, I just didn't really want to talk about it. Um, it. Meeting my mother-in-law who insisted I call her mother. She wouldn't let me call her by her first name, Juanita. She insisted. I was like, this is weird. Okay. Um, kind of helped me heal the rift with my mother. And it's that beautiful feminine energy that no man has. <laughs> they just, we just don't have it. That's not our forte. That's not our strong suit. And her love for me healed me in ways I wasn't expecting, in ways I didn't know that I needed it. And more importantly, and more beautifully, and I'm so grateful to her. I miss her every day. She passed away two years ago, my mother-in-law. Helped me to open the door to mend my rift with my mother and create the relationship we have now. And that has been um, a long time coming, a long time coming. You need that love. You need that support. And as a man, as this for this man, let me just speak for myself, for this man, I needed that feminine energy. And I think if I'm going to be really honest, I was the one who blocked and hindered that energy coming in because it was always there. But the problem was me, not her. So Dara, how do you define resilience? I don't know if I have a one word answer for it. I know everybody wants a one word answer. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what I define it. Um, everyone's resilient. We all are. The fact that we're even here, like you and me are here and the rest of the 8 billion of us on this planet that we call home, Earth, we've already won the genetic lottery because there were a lot of sperm and a lot of eggs that didn't make it. And that's resilience. You already got it within you. Now, very few people look at it this way, and some people go, oh, that guy's talking about the side of his neck. Fine. But what if I'm not? Right? No matter what situation you're put in, I can say this for myself. You're stronger than you know, and you're stronger than the situation you're in. And the reason that situation's happening, we could come up with a million reasons why. I found the most resourceful way to look at it, a difficult, challenging situation is in how it makes you become, that puts that pressure on you so that you become the pearl or the diamond within yourself. Because without that stress, without that pressure, you never really find out who you are and what you're made out of. So in order to do that, you have to develop your resilience. You have to develop a sense of humor, keep your perspective, right? And 
you want to be able to own your bad parts as well as your good parts. In fact, I'll run back. The, the uh, excuse me. I'll run back over what I said. The other thing that happens a lot with people with resilience is there's a really fine line between fear and excitement. It's a very fine line. And I told the story where uh, I think it was Tony Robbins was talking to, he was doing these interviews and he talked to Barbara Streisand and he ended up talking to Bruce Springsteen. And he noticed in talking to both of them that they both had issues around performing. Barbara Streisand has a notorious uh, stage fright. So bad she vomits and she can't go on stage, but she does eventually, but it's a whole thing for her. Bruce Springsteen, you know, and she would explain what, what that was like to Tony Robbins while he was talking to her. And then he spoke to Bruce Springsteen, however long later, and Bruce explained what he was feeling just before he'd go on stage. And he noticed, Robbins noticed that the same feelings were in both Barbara Streisand and Bruce Springsteen. But for Barbara Streisand, that meant abject fear and, oh, my God, I'm going to die. For Bruce Springsteen, he said, yeah, that just lets me know I'm ready to go on. Those butterflies, that tingling. So you, you always want to know, is it fear or excitement? And, and it's important because really fear, is, fear and doubt are your two biggest traitors. They're not even real. Like the only thing really to fear is your death. And even that, that's not to be feared. It's just another step on the journey. None of us know what it is. That's another conversation for another time. But if you really look closely, I think you're more excited more than you think you're afraid, right? Maybe a little bit afraid because you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. You're going to take a leap of faith into a new direction you haven't gone before, something you don't know how to do, people, places, whatever it is. But it's excitement. If you can identify that that's what it is, rather than abject fear, you're already in a better place. Yeah. Um, the last thing I talked about was contribution. And I've mentioned it already in this thing. But remember, I said, you know, the human brain has that, that uh, it's that built-in thing we have. The survival mechanism makes us become very self-centered and self-absorbed when we're in pain. So it's imperative that you find something that's bigger than you, something that gives your life meaning and purpose. For some people, it's their children, their children's lives, and, their, and what they're going to do. For other people like me, it's social justice issues. Um, for, for other people, it's you know helping people get through a very terrible time in their life, cancer. But in that thing, that's bigger than you. Cancer is way bigger than you, right? So that gave you something to strive for. And so that it wasn't just about you surviving your cancer. It was about you being able to share this message and helping other people realize, hey, man, you're not alone. And if you can do those five things, I, I promise you, you will build resilience. Yeah. You know, you have a beautiful quote in there by Frederick Douglass. I prayed oh. for 20 years and received no answer. Then I prayed with, you know, and then I prayed with my legs. I, I just, I, it was just beautiful. I've never heard that. And I was like moved by it. I mean, it's amazing, right? Frederick, I mean, what, what are your troubles? What are my troubles compared to Frederick Douglass in that time in this country? And, and it's so amazing to me that stuff like that's not taught. And I don't want to make this political, but this is a part of what they call critical race theory, which is just 
accurately telling the history of America. And I mean, think how powerful that is to share that. He prayed for 20 years. He was a slave and he just wanted to be free. And one day he says, F it. And he started praying with his legs, right? Take action. You can sit and meditate. You can sit and pray. They're beautiful things, but if it's not followed by action, nothing's going to happen ever, ever. And you know, on that note, I used to pray that I would be able to meet a saint. I don't know why that was important to me. Uh, I mean, I did get caught up in a pseudo-religious cult, so, <laughs> okay. But uh, I thought, you know, if I met a saint, maybe that would help. Because none of the churches, the synagogues, the mosques, the temples, none of that was working for me. And none of the people that ran those things, the priests, the, the, the reverends, the, the rabbis, the whatever, they weren't answering any, anything for me. And the damnedest thing happened. And it didn't happen until my mother-in-law passed away. And I was thinking of what I was going to say, uh, eulogizing her at a memorial. And I realized, oh, my God, you fool. <laughs> You've had a saint right under your nose mm -hmm. the whole time. Except you were thinking it was going to be some old white man. But no, it's an older black woman. Oh. Very humbling. Very, very humbling. So now what I like to do is transition to what I call brainstorming. I asked a question in the series about what could you do to create a movement? And the thing that really sort of struck me was the fact that you mentioned sort of getting to know yourself, like really has been in invaluable. I would love to sort of talk about that and how I see that in my own life and how you see that in yours. I want to hear you say how you, I want to hear your, your version first, if you don't mind. Sure. So I had a really good friend. I'm no longer in contact with her. I've known her for about 20 years. And she would always say to me, we are here to polish the facets of our character. The mm. only way out is the way in. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what does that actually mean? And I was like someone who just had a voracious curiosity, voracious appetite for learning. And I would just really would just like not berate myself, but I would find ways that I could just be better, a better human, better person, more sort of awake, aware. Um, and so for me, it's really about figuring out like what my motives are, like what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What's the vision that I want to create? How can I get there? So for me, it's a lot about introspection, but I've also learned, like you said, a lot of it also is out in the real world. Like, believe it or not, I'm doing these things on video. It's like, that's my big issue, like being seen and, and doing these things, but I'm pushing myself to get there because I know myself and I know that I want more. And so, I think the key there is to really ask yourself those deeper questions. So that, that's where I would start. Wow. Wow. You are uh, an outlier that way. Do you realize that? Uh, yeah, to some degree I do. actually. Well, uh, allow me. Um, you're an outlier that way. Um, first of all, congratulations. Kudos to you. That takes a lot of guts to say that. And it uh, takes a lot of guts to be on a camera and do this when I'm sure you're not comfortable about it. I didn't want to say anything. I could tell there's a little bit there because when you, I stand in front of a camera for a yeah. So you begin to notice people's picadillos and their, their hitches and their giddy up and their twitches mm -hmm. and their tells. Um, good for you, man. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, that's not a, you just said a mouthful. 
so wild. You know, I was thinking about this. The only thing that really mattered to me ever since I was a little boy was knowing myself, right? Like I said, uh, I'd say jokingly in the introduction to my podcast, the ancient Greeks had it right. Know thyself. It was in stone above the arch as you went into Delphi. And then Shakespeare said, to thine own self, be true. And uh, that always resonated with me because... If you know your, this is just me. This was how my brain works. If I know myself, then only good will come from that. Only good. There's nothing to fear anymore if I know myself. And I think that most of people's insecurities and anxieties and depression or depressive episodes uh, come from that. And... Uh, what better place to start? The bitch of it is most people don't want to have that conversation mm -hmm. and they're terrified of what they're going to see within themselves, which is insane. <laughs> you know, it's insane. You, you know, you're not as bad as you think you are or have been led to believe you are. And, um, so when I, you know, started working my way out of this brainwashing, which was really largely my own doing, I had to figure out my own way out. There's, at the time, there was no, there was nothing in line. Well, this is what you do. And I still don't think there is. And, and I don't know that, you know, there's a, a turnkey approach to it. But um, it caused me to go within and really examine all my beliefs and my values. And uh, that, for me, was really difficult really challenging and ultimately the best thing I've ever done. And those two things I've talked about are fluid mediums. They're not linear. They're not set in stone. And uh, I don't know, man, I could go on about this forever in a day. Uh, I think it's amazing that you recognize that within yourself and that you actually had a friend. I'm sorry. You're not talking to each other uh, right now. Shit happens. You know, life gets complicated, man, as we get older. And our responsibilities change. Uh, but to have had that friend with that influence in your life is profound. Yeah. Thank you, Dar. I appreciate yeah. it. So where can my audience find out more about you online? You can find me on my website, which is dardixon.com, which is going to be getting renovated very soon. Uh, again, websites, not those are fluid mediums as well. Um, you can also check up on me if you want to see some of the work I've done, not all of the work. There's a, a website called Internet Movie Database, imdb.com, and you can type in my name and check that out. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel, uh, which I have, I'm starting my podcast back up, and I put uh, clips on that. Uh, and then uh, I've, you know, I do interviews like this fairly frequently. Um, Cross me on somebody else's podcast one of these days, maybe on YouTube, maybe on StreamYard. I don't know. Maybe on someone's website. Excellent. Well, thank you yeah. so, so much. Seriously, this has been really fantastic. Thank you, Dar. Thank you for having me, Savio. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, 
a subscription to my weekly newsletter where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, where you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here Is How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.